Now, for those of you who don't know us, it's our tendency and our practice in Forest Town Church to preach through books methodically in books in the Bible. We do occasionally have sermons and themes and times when we teach topically and have a self-contained sermon, but our regular practice is to work our way through the books of the Bible quite methodically. And it takes quite a while. How long have we been busy with 1 Corinthians? When did we start, Helen? About 15 years ago. <laughs> but we, in January, we, we're in chapter 7 at the moment. We're going to finish up chapter 7 today. Um, there's a real value, we believe, in this because if we are not careful, we're inclined to go into the Bible, just look for the topics that we like or the topics that are bothering us. When you work your way through a book of the Bible, you read the parts you want to and the parts you don't want to as well. And we've had quite an interesting journey so far to put the context of the book of Corinthians or 1 Corinthians, as we always do at the beginning of sermons. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he had planted and nurtured. He'd spent a year and a half with them. He'd established them in Corinth, which was a, a very vibrant, powerful city with a very decadent lifestyle all sorts of malpractices taking place, particularly in the area of sexual promiscuity within the temples and all sorts of things. And into this environment, Paul has planted a church. And over a period of time, this church grows, and Paul's not there, and they begin to experience some challenges and problems and queries. And Paul gets a message. He gets informed that there are certain areas that the church is struggling in. And so he writes this letter because he can't make the journey himself at that time and addresses specific things. He writes them in the middle of where they are, and he talks about factions. In the beginning, we talked about the fact that there were within the church people who said, I follow this preacher, I follow that preacher, and we talked about the fact that that was people treating their church service as a consumer event where you go with whatever's popular for you. We've looked at people taking each other to courts and, and, and setting disputes in law courts, but this chapter we've been in now for the last while has had a lot to do with struggles that people had with marriage and intimacy and relationships. And there were extremes taking place in Corinth at the time. There were people who were still involved in the licentious lifestyle of Corinth. The use of prostitutes, even as part of worship at the temples of the, of the pagan gods, was of common practice, and people did that without thinking it was bad. So that had crept into the church, and there were even situations where a, a man was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Frightening concept, that. Um, but all sorts of sexual uh, promiscuity taking place. And then also at the same time, there were people who were saying, we don't get married, we don't have sex, we are completely pure. And there was an argument raging, which has continued in the church for some time. I love when I'm preaching to, to wander around through concordances and, and commentaries on the Bible. And, you know, Ant and Edda both spoken and Helen have spoken recently about the fact that Paul was advising at this time that people, if they could avoid it, if they could find it in themselves, didn't get married and stayed single because they could be more useful for the kingdom. But some people were then saying that Paul was advocating total celibacy for everybody, forced celibacy, and, and, and no one should get married. And that's raged as a controversy through the ages. And just as I was reading, I found one commentary which quite amused me with the vehemence that this gentleman opposed to one particular thought. He obviously was very opposed to celibacy and not marrying because he writes the following. This is a guy called Adam Clark who was a Methodist, Methodist biblical scholar in the, the late part of the 1700s and the early part of the 1800s. And he writes this, and I just, this is not reflecting any of our particular points of view, but I just found it an amusing anecdote, just the style of his, his aggression. 
On the important subject of marriage, I have said what I believe to be true and scruple not to say it is the most useful state in which the human being can be placed. And consequently, that in the, it, is in the most honor, it is the place in which the most honor can be brought to God. I have listened with much attention for the better part of half a century to the arguments for and against marriage and in favor of celibacy. And I've had the opportunity of being acquainted with those who have endeavored to end, exemplify their own doctrine. But I have seen an end of all their perfection. Neither the world nor the church are under any obligation to them. They either married when they could, or continuing in their celibacy, they lived comparatively useless lives and died as they should, unregretted. Whoa. This doctrine is not only dangerous but anti-scriptural, and I hope I've sufficiently vindicated Paul from being its patron or supporter. So this is something in which uh, conversations run hot in this topic, and we're coming back to the last little skirmish in this area. But in actual fact, we're not going to concentrate so much on marriage but on the principle of what Paul is teaching here. But we're going to go to... Well, before I do that, in this concept of Paul advising against marriage on certain occasions, there's a simple concept for me, a simple thought that I, you know, Helen says some of this is quite complicated. I'm quite a simple person. I, I kind of see very simple storylines in my head. And when Paul is often advocating that people don't get married, we've said over and over again, it's not because he's opposed to marriage, which is a godly institution of blessing given to us, and sex is part of that marriage to be a godly thing given to us, and the children that result is a blessing from the Lord. But I want to read to you from <clears throat> the version which I call CTICV version, not the NIV. It's the CTICV. It's Clive's tongue-in-cheek version. And I'm going to put a little bit of a twist onto Acts chapter, 1, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Paul and Barnabas are at the church in Antioch, and they are part of the leadership in the church, and God is going to call them into mission. And this is what the CTICV version says about that. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they instructed Paul to inquire, and now I'm going to introduce a fictitious wife for Paul, if he was married, and I'm going to call her Pauline. They instructed Paul to inquire of Pauline if it was okay for him and Barnabas to pop out for a few months. Pauline agreed to this, but was, did stipulate that Paul had to be back in time to celebrate his mother-in-law's 60th birthday, and that he should write to her daily. Now, what am I doing by being so free with the Scriptures? I'm trying to point out to you that there was a practical reason in Paul's own life for his being single. They could say, Paul, we need you to go on a mission journey, and he and Barnabas would take their donkeys or get on their sandals, and they would be off doing it. There was nothing hindering him. He's not saying that the the, the, the premise of marriage and the joy of marriage is a bad thing. And if he was married to Pauline and she expected those things from him, they would not be unreasonable. But he's saying that there's a place in this time, which he calls a time of, of tension and, 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 and pressure, for people to keep themselves available to God at short notice. And he's encouraging those people. But we come today to today's scripture, which ends chapter 7. So let's have a look at that. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry her, 
He should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry the virgin does better. And then he goes on to women who are left without their husbands. A woman is bound to her husband for as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happy if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Interesting, Paul introduces a situation where he says, if a man does this, it's right, but if he does that, it's also right. There is some debate, which I'm not going to enter into, whether he was talking about a father who had a virgin daughter that he was going to marry off or not marry off, or whether this was a betrothed man and, and the woman he was going to marry. But the, the concept is, if there is somebody and they are about to be married or they've entered into the very strong process of being betrothed, which for the Jewish community is almost like being married, but they decide that they don't want to go forward for the sake of being more available to the kingdom of God, then it's not wrong for them to break that betrothal. By the same token, if in one of the translations it says, if she's getting to the point in her life where her best years are passing, and I, I think they're referring to what people nowadays call the biological clock ticking, and it is, there's pressure on her and in herself for her to get married, then that is also all right. Paul's saying there is two all rights. And that doesn't fit many people who like to elevate every choice to being a choice between good and evil, or sin and sanctification. We have a tendency to take things to the extremes on either side, and sometimes talks about walking the radical middle path. Some people have a sort of a karma approach to God in our lives. I hit my thumb with a hammer. This was because it was the destiny of my life to have that happen. This is God's plan for me. Um, it was fated to be rather than saying I was inattentive and I hit my thumb with the hammer. For some people, there's this, whatever happens in my life must be the will of God because I've given my life to God. Other people elevate everything to a spiritual battle. Are you coming to the church picnic? I haven't prayed about it yet. And somewhere in here, Paul is speaking advice, and some of the advice he's bringing is godly instruction, it's dogmatic instruction from God, do this, don't do that. And some of it, Paul is saying, I've been around for a while. I have the Spirit of God within me. I have experience. I have godly wisdom. And I can guide you in a way that is expedient for what you need to be doing and what needs to happen in your life. Paul is quite comfortable sharing a point of view without making it a scriptural law. It's formed by the evidence of time and place and priorities and is not an issue of sin or no sin, but is what is deemed to be godly wisdom, with experience being very helpful and appropriate in the situation. Now, Paul is working at a time that he deems to be something special. Helen spoke about this last week. And some people, when he refers to this, this present time, say that he's referring to the, or this present crisis. As Helen pointed out, said he was referring to a particular natural disaster or a famine or something of that nature. Some people say it was the beginning of the, the persecution that would take place from both Jews and Christians. But Helen pointed out that what is a very likely explanation for this crisis of time is the fact that Paul is placing himself between the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And the coming of Christ triggered a series of events and requirements and things that we need to see happen 
before the second coming of Christ. And one of them is the gospel needs to be preached to all nations. And we've got to do that. So we need to get busy. I don't know if any of you saw Johnny English, but there was this scene with the imposter of an archbishop having this tattoo on his lower back, shall we call it, which says, Jesus is coming, look busy. Now, that was not intended to be a scriptural instruction, but we should be busy. Jesus is coming. We shouldn't just look busy. We should be busy fulfilling the calling that we have. And Paul feels that tension and says this is a time because he believed Christ could come back at any time just like we do. And he was saying this is a time to, to prioritize our service to Christ and the task we have in the Great Commission to make disciples through the world. Now, he's looking at the current circumstances and he's advocating a change in people's behavior. He's saying, perhaps it's better if you don't get married. Now, when I preached last, I spoke specifically on the fact that Paul also said to people, when you come to Christ, you don't have to specifically change your circumstances. So am I contradicting myself in saying that Paul is taking circumstances into account? What I preached about last time was the fact that we should not disqualify ourselves, red card ourselves, and remove ourselves from God's calling on our lives because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We should become above those circumstances, not under the circumstances. But circumstances do affect our strategy in the way that we go about things. Jesus didn't always preach in the same way. He didn't always heal in the same way. Paul doesn't always respond to circumstances in the same way. Thankfully, I'll give you an example where circumstances have influenced Paul's strategy and where he has made a decision not based on a law of Scripture or a dogmatic instruction from Christ that he has received, but where he has used godly wisdom. And that comes in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, and Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in the area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, I've mentioned this before. Paul has been involved on a number of occasions in hefty arguments and, and, and speaking out very strongly about the fact that if you became a Christian and you were not a Jew, you did not to get, need to get circumcised. He has said that over and over again, and yet here he seems to do something in contradiction to what he says. But Paul looks at this situation. I want to take Timothy with me, with me as our journey. And Paul's practice when he came into a town or city was go to the synagogue, start there. If he took Timothy into the synagogue with him as an uncircumcised Gentile, he wouldn't have got a chance to speak. All chaos would have broken loose because of the culture of the Jews. So he says, for the expediency of preaching the gospel, I'm going to circumcise Timothy. There is no scriptural precedent that says he has to be circumcised, but it will work better if he is. And Paul is using godly wisdom in the circumstances that he's in. He is not prescribing a spiritual truth which now lives forevermore. Thank you, Jesus. Two years ago, Wayne Neupe invited me to go to Nepal with him. He didn't say, Clive, come to Nepal. You need to get shots for dysentery and cholera and yellow fever and hepatitis, and you need to find a rabbi with a sharp knife. It's not a spiritual law. It was an expedient Godly wisdom being practiced at that time. Paul put into practice the fact that he knew what would happen if he didn't do this. And bless his heart, Timothy was prepared to do it. And so for the sake of the kingdom, a particular thing was done, which was not, this is the law for the next 2,000 years. 
It was not required by Christ that Timothy be circumcised, but it was the use of godly wisdom to avoid ongoing and unnecessary conflict that would impact on their ministry. We need to be careful about making rules from individual experiences. I've told a story once before, but it's helped me a lot, so I'll tell it again. A little girl came to her, a little girl, a teenager, came to her mother and said to her, Mom, I want to learn how to cook a leg of lamb just like you cook a leg of lamb. And her mother was so delighted that she could have this chance to pass on what she had received from her mother. And so she told her how to uh, rub a bit of oil and some butter into the lamb and to cut some holes and push some garlic down into them and, and, and to prepare the, the, the tray to go in. And then she said, just before you place the leg of lamb into the baking tray, cut the last four inches through and bend it down to below the rest of the, of the leg of lamb. And the young girl said to her mother, why? And she said, well, to be honest, I don't know. That's what your grandmother taught me. And I've always done it that way. So it just so happened that grandma was local and still around. And so the young girl, when she next saw her, said, grandma, mom's teaching me to do a leg of lamb. And, and she showed me how to get it ready for roasting. But she said, right at the end, I was to cut through the last four inches and fold them down below the rest of the leg of lamb. And I asked her why we do that, and she said she didn't know, but you had taught her that way. And so I'm asking you, why did you do that? And she said, you know, my dear, that's how my mother taught me. Now, it just so happened that great-grandma was still with us. And so off she went to the care home where she was, and she greeted her and had a conversation. She said, great-grandma, I'm learning to do a leg of lamb, and she told her the whole story, and she said, and I've spoken to mom, and she couldn't tell me why. And I spoke to grandma, and she said, you taught her. Why did she do that? And she said, my dear, I had a very small oven. <laughs> and we need to be careful about introducing circumstantial situations where God leads us in godly wisdom to deal with a particular situation at a certain time in a certain way, and then inflicting that or enforcing that on other people as being, this is, because this is the way we've done it, this is the only way to do it. God doesn't expect us to become stupid when we get born again. There are things that we will do out of godly wisdom that are different. And I've just written some things down. Your difference between inspired dogmatic instruction, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says this, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. Paul is saying, this is from God. This is, this is what God wants. He, he doesn't want it differently. I'm giving you an instruction, a command. I'm not making a suggestion. In 1 Corinthians 7.25, he says, Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give judgment as one by whom the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And as we read the Bible and as we live our lives, we need to be able to draw the distinction between this is what God says, and if I don't do that, I'm displeasing God and I'm sinning, and this is the options that God gives me. Very importantly, though, if I'm giving you a freedom now and saying there are times when you make the decision, we need to be sure that we do that in context with Scripture. God's godly wisdom is never going to be in contrast with God's godly wisdom in Scripture. So I can't come up, as some people tend to do, with a new way to do things that suits me better, and I say I'm exercising my godly wisdom. And another thing about this, you can only have the wisdom of God if you really know God. How do you get the wisdom from your grandmother? By spending time with your grandmother and having conversations. How does mom teach you? By you watching mom and seeing what she does and by doing what she's 
asked you to do and by asking her questions and by having long conversations with her. And if we want to say we're operating in godly wisdom, it needs to come out of a godly relationship. It needs to come out of the depth of relationship. Without being unkind, you get born again today, you don't immediately begin speaking in godly wisdom the next day. There is a time of growing in our understanding of God. He can work supernaturally through us in word of wisdom. I'm not saying that can't happen. But we grow in our presence with God. I retired two years ago from being the headmaster of a school. I'm still working most of the week. I'm retired on Monday mornings and Thursday mornings at the moment. But I retired as headmaster of the school, and the gentleman who took over had worked with me for 17 years. And sometimes people say to me, does Andy ever ask you for advice? And I say, not really. He's worked with me for 17 years. He knows what I think. We've been through pretty much every kind of crisis you can go through in a school at some stage or other. He was standing next to me. He knows what I would say, and he now has the freedom to exercise his own wisdom in the experience that he's gained and what he's choosing to do at that time. But he doesn't have to keep coming back to me because he knows. This is what I would say. He may agree or not agree with that, but he knows. Do you know the heart of God to the extent that when you are faced with a a situation that requires this godly wisdom that you can say, I'm in line with God's will in my life. I'm in line with God's plan with my life when I do this thing. Now, along with this, and I'm picking up some scattered points about this, I love the fact that Michael Eaton, when he points out that there is a place in this as well for what you actually enjoy. Paul is talking to the widow or about the widow, and he says, if she loses her husband and she's been faithful to all her life, she can marry who she pleases as long as it's a Christian. She can actually enjoy being married again. It's, it's sometimes a Christian thing that we, we wear these spiritual horsehair shirts like the old monks used to wear. If we have a couple of options and we, we want to exercise godly wisdom, what would God want? We think it's probably the hardest one. Probably the one that's the least enjoyable that, you know, I can suffer for Jesus. And sometimes you can serve Jesus in great joy and great enjoyment. I would love to be with Anton Wayne at the moment in India. They are going to be hot and sweaty and tired and exhausted at times and being exposed to all sorts of new things for them. But there is a, there is a joy in that that you can, you're, it's okay to enjoy it. It's okay to have fun. You know, I just use the silly example. If I come down in the morning for breakfast, I need to go on record, I do not like muesli. I do not see the point of muesli. I think it's an abomination. <laughs> Eating it is like trying to chew your way out of a haystack. It has, it has the qualities of duck feathers. You put moisture on it and it doesn't get wet. You have a bowl of muesli and you put milk in it, you have the muesli and the milk and you experience them separately. I do not like muesli, but it's healthy. Now, if I come down in the morning and eyeing me is the option of a three-egg omelet with grated cheese and ham and some chili and a bowl of muesli, I'm not going to go to hell if I choose the omelet. Not everything is around the fact that I have to suffer, but I do have to eat healthily, which I'm not doing at the moment. And I feel challenged. And I feel rebuked by my, my own conscience. 
But we, are, we need to be so careful. Sometimes when you're faced with a situation and you're wondering, what should I do? There is this, I, I grew up in a very Calvinistic kind of church background. There's this kind of thing, well, which one will I suffer more for Jesus? Reminds me of the old lady in the Karoo in South Africa when she first encountered ice cream, wouldn't eat it because it tasted too good. It had to be from the devil. And we sometimes have that, I need to ask myself, is what I'm going to do in godly wisdom going to fulfill the purpose of God in my life? Is it going to take me nearer to God's purpose in my life or away from it? Is it in line with God's word? Is it in line with the wisdom that I get from godly people around me? Is it going to achieve God's purpose in an honorable way or not? And if there are two different ways I can do this, then I actually am allowed to choose. She can get married, the widow, or she can not get married. And Michael Eaton says, Paul has concern for the well-being of the woman. So I would encourage you, let's be sensible. You know, there's some people, and God bless their hearts, they get born again and they turn into space cadets. Everything has to be a little bit weird. Everything has to be out there like shuwa. You, you can't just do something. It's got to have a deep spiritual significance. Now, if I've given my life to Christ in its entirety and, and I'm being true to that, then my life is going to be impacted in small ways and big ways by Jesus Christ. And it's going to be, I'm going to strive to walk to his plan. But I haven't become brainless. I haven't become somebody without any experience or skill or training. Those things need to be subjected to the will of God and to the word of God and to the purpose of God. But you don't just throw everything out the window. I remember years and years, this is going to give you my age. When Cliff Richards became a Christian, everybody said he should stop singing pop songs. Do we stop bank managers from being a bank manager when they become a Christian? Does everything have to change? Do we have to stop using our skills? But what he is trying to do or better for worse, is use his platform as a pop singer to further the kingdom of God. There is a choice that we have. He could have chosen to become a missionary. He could have chosen to abandon life. But I don't think one choice or the other was a God-ordained scripture that says, this is if you become a Christian, you have to stop having your previous secular job. I want to encourage you. Be dynamic in your relationship with God. If you want godly wisdom, talk to God. Lots about big things and about small things. Read the Bible with a, with a curious mind that says, why? The Apostle Paul has come in amongst a bunch of people, and each one of them that is doing something wrong has a justification for it. This is the way we've always done it. This is what I understand Scripture to be. This is what this person said. And Paul comes in and says, this is what God says. Do it. And then there are some things where God says, if you are walking in my path, there are going to be choices. Use godly wisdom. Gain that wisdom. Seek after it. Searching for wisdom. The beginning of, of wisdom is the fear of God. It's a relationship with God, a respect for God. And I want to leave you with that challenge. But I don't want to stop just right now because I just had it on my heart as we stood in worship this morning. We've been talking over the last while about a lot of concepts for people who are in the church. People who are in some way or other trying to follow God's tenets and trying to work out how to do that. But you might be sitting here and you've never made that decision. You might be sitting here and saying, well, it's interesting how these guys do this thing, but what's it all about anyway? The only reason these things are important is because God decided one day that he was going to save us from our sins and sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to die for us. 
And these things are important to us because we have become children of God. We have become the family of God. We have become people who have a hope and a future in God. And now we're working out the details of how we do it. But if you don't know Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have never made that decision, then I imagine that a lot of this is going and may not be important. And so I want to say this to you. You need Jesus. If you haven't made that decision, the only way Jesus says we get to God is by him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And so I urge you, if you've been testing our Christianity, if you're here to see what goes on, if you're here because someone's brought you, if you're just here and you've been coming for a while but you've never bothered to go any further, you need Jesus. You need to acknowledge that he died for your sins and paid for every single sin that you've ever committed or will commit. And as such, he has bought your salvation. You can go to God and say, because of Jesus, I want to come to you and offer my repentance for my sins and ask you to take my life and let me be your child. That's really what we're here for. All the rest is just preparing us to do that. If you haven't made that decision and you would like to, I'm going to be up at the front for a while after the service ends. Do come and see me. Let me pray with you. Don't walk out to this place if you don't know Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us godly wisdom. Thank you that you give us clear instruction. Thank you that you give us Jesus. I want to pray for each person that knows you here that they will grow in their wisdom and knowledge and enjoyment of your presence, that they will realize that we can have fun with you that not every choice that we make for you is a difficult one. But for those who haven't got the joy of being in your presence regularly because they don't know you yet, I want to ask you, Lord, to touch their hearts right now, that they will know how much you love them, how much you care for them, and that they can have complete freedom from their sins, forgiveness from their sins, and your presence in their life to help them through the, the challenges that follow. Father, stir up hearts, we pray in Jesus' name today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power and the strength that it has in Jesus' name. Amen.